Hello and welcome to our weekly podcast from Faith Point Church, Auckland, New Zealand. We hope you will encounter God afresh in this week's teaching segment. If you enjoy this podcast and would like to hear more, then you can visit us at www.faithpoint.org.nz. And now for today's message. This morning we are going to continue the series that I began two months ago where we are talking about how can we live with purpose? How can we live with single-minded focus? How can our lives be motivated and propelled forward to carry out the purposes that God has called us for? That so often we fall into the trap of living a comfortable life, living a life where we, we are really not living so much for God, but we're living for ourselves and falling into the deception that there is no agenda that God has designed for our lives. Friends, I want to tell you, if you're a human being today, is there any human beings in the house? <laughs> if you're a human today, then God has designed you to live with purpose, and that purpose is to build His kingdom. Jesus taught us to pray, Your kingdom come. Your will be done here on earth as it's already being done in heaven. And that purpose and that priority, Jesus said in Matthew 6.33, Seek ye first the kingdom of God and His righteousness and all these things that the world is chasing and pursuing, the money, the fame, the possessions. You won't have to chase those things. Those things will chase you when you place His kingdom as a priority. If you seek him first and his kingdom first, then all those things Jesus said will be added into your life. You don't have to pursue them. They will pursue you and they will chase you down. It's all about priorities. And so we can live with a much greater motivation and inspiration in our lives when we get an understanding of what is the end goal. Where is all this going? Where is all this heading with everything that's going on on planet Earth right now? With people ready to press those big red buttons and send nuclear warheads off across nations and continents? Where is the world heading? Well, the Bible is very, very clear with where the world is heading. There is a specific timeline all through Scripture of what the world is heading to. One great ginormous event. As lightning strikes from the west to the east, so shall the coming of the Son of Man be. The second coming of Christ will be the greatest event that the world has ever seen. Jesus is coming back again. And before He comes back, He said, there's a number of things that I'm going to accomplish. And when He comes back and it all washes up and the curtains come down, on the end of the age, and there's no more rehearsal for, for eternity, then we will all discover ourselves in an, in, in an eternal destination. You are going to live forever. But there's only one of two locations that we all have a destination towards. And one of them, God doesn't want any man or woman to perish, but that all should come in repentance to Him. You see, friends, if we have an eternal perspective and we understand the game plan and the end goal, then we can live with much greater purpose and resolve within our lives. We can march and step to the beat of God's drum instead of marching to the beat of somebody else's drum, where we can live 
and rhythm and in purpose with the things of the kingdom of God. And then, friends, when we understand that that day is coming, what day is that? The Bible talks about the day, that day. The day where every human being will be judged according to their works. If we understand that we all have an appointment that none of us are going to be late for, that day, then we can begin to live our lives with purpose this day, today. And I want to preach today on something that is probably the most difficult sermon for any pastor to preach. But it's something that we cannot and should not avoid. You know, we, tell, we train our children not to put their fingers in electric sockets. I did that as a kid. It was a shocking experience. <laughs> That's a Fiji joke. I woke up on the other side of the room, by the way, as I, my body was flung with those bolts coming out of the... But we warn them, we warn them not to go near the road where fast cars are travelling up and down. We warn them not to put their finger on the hot plate on the stove. Why do we do that, friends? We do that because there are consequences for our actions. And I want to talk to you today in the next two installments of Living with Eternal Perspective, one of the greatest reasons why we can be, can be and should be motivated more than any other human being is when we understand that there is a place called Hades, there is a place called hell, Many name, names it's known, known under, Gehenna, the lake of fire, Sheol, the grave, the bottomless pit, are all names in Scripture for the destination of those who are lost and without Christ and separated from Him. And when their body gives up the ghost, they will go to that eternal place of torment that was, that was never designed for mankind in the beginning. You know, the Bible says, and Jesus is very, very clear about this, regarding this, this destination that he's been talking about in Scripture. And before I get there, I want to... You remember we talked about the difference between milk and meat, Christians, in the previous installment? That Paul said to the congregation at Corinth, I want to treat you as grown-up adults, but I can't because you're still babies. You haven't matured. You're like an infant. You must still remain on the milk. I can't give you the meat because you, you're not capable of chewing it and digesting it because you still haven't got the foundations right. And in Hebrews chapter 5, at the end of that chapter, we find the writer to the, uh, to the Hebrew congregation, he says this, he says, by now you ought to be teachers, but I still have to go over the basics with you because you haven't grown up. And then he goes on in Hebrews 6, and he says this in verses 1 and 2. Therefore, leaving the discussion of the elementary principles of Christ. So he's now saying, I want to move on. I want to move past the elementary, the basic things of the faith. 
so that we can all move forward. In verse 3, he says, if the Lord will permit us to do that. And then he says, let us go on to perfection. That means to maturity. Not laying again the foundation. And he gives us six, six foundation stones. Number one, repentance from dead works. Don't keep doing things in your life that's sinning against God and are going to cause spiritual death around your life. Stay away from those. True repentance will cause you to move forward in your life, not to be going round and round the same issue over and over again. Number two, he says, I want you to have faith towards God. Without faith, it is impossible to please God. Every believer comes through the avenue of faith, of simply believing in who God says He is. And when we exercise that faith towards God, faith pleases God and God responds towards us. When we who are here on earth believe in the invisible God, the God who we cannot see, but we believe in Him nevertheless and He moves and He moves around our lives when we exercise faith because it's pleasing to Him. Number three, the doctrine of baptisms. Friends, there's more than just water baptism. There's been baptized into the body of Christ. There's water baptism. There's baptism in the Holy Spirit. There's baptism of fire. There's not just one baptism. The doctrine of baptisms, plural. Number four. Number five. Uh, sorry, number four. Laying on of hands. That the power of God is transmitted through the laying on of hands in our lives. That we are extensions of God's glory. Number five, the resurrection from the dead. That every person in history past, every person that has died will one day be resurrected to face the judgment. Every single person without fail. And number six, eternal judgment. And the writer is saying this, I want to move past these basic foundation stones. And he called them elementary. Well, we know what elementary school is, right? Elementary school is primary school. Elementary school is where you learn the elementary things, where you learn the basics, where you learn the primary things of what an education can be built upon. You learn to read. You learn to write. You learn to do maths. And if you don't have the elementary foundations in your life, then you can't go on to higher education. And in the same way, the writer here is saying, if you can't get the basic elementary doctrines of Christ working in your life, you can't grow up. You can't move on. And yet one of the doctrines that he says, which we're going to talk about today and next week, is eternal judgment. What is eternal judgment? What is going to happen at the end of the world? What is going to happen when God causes every person to come and give an account of their lives and the way they've lived it on earth? Can you explain that to somebody? Can you take them to Scripture and verse? Can you show them in the Word of God that one day, no matter whether they're a believer or an unbeliever, they will stand before the Lord and have to give an account of how they've lived their lives? So friends... To gain an eternal perspective that will move you forward and propel you into the things of God, we're going to cover this very, very difficult subject today. The subject of what is eternal damnation? What is this place of being separated and being alone forever and ever through all eternity? Sometimes our mind cannot comprehend what eternity is. 
The Bible calls hell a bottomless pit. And if you think about that, of jumping into a hole that never finds the bottom, we can sort of comprehend it in our mind, but we can't really configure it in our hearts. People have said to me, and I understand it, I understand the logic, I understand the reason, how, how can you, as a pastor, how can you say that God is a loving God when you talk about the doctrine of hell? That human beings are going to be tormented for eternity. Well, friends, I want to tell you something. First of all, is that hell was never made for human beings. Jesus made this very clear in Matthew 25, 41. Then he will say to those on the left hand, Depart from me, you cursed, into the everlasting fire, prepared for the devil and his angels. Who are they? These are the ones that led the rebellion in heaven. And why was a lake of fire prepared for these ones? Because the Bible teaches us that there is no repentance with the devil. That the devil has made a decision. He said, I will be like the Most High God. In the book of Isaiah, it, it shows us the five I wills of Satan when he rebelled in heaven. And he turned and led a rebellion against God. And he has no, nothing in his heart that will ever cause him to lead repentance. And all of those that followed him knew what they were doing. They made a decision and they made a choice. Friends, when you are ruling in government, there has to be consequences, consequences for evil action. Can you imagine a policeman standing outside on your street looking at someone vandalise your car and him just looking there and standing there and doing nothing and saying, oh, boys will be boys. Can you imagine a society that exists with no consequences? So God said there had to be a consequence for the rebellion that was led in heaven. And so God reluctantly designed a place of torment for those who had willfully turned their back on him and led the rebellion. And that angel was called Lucifer. And the Bible teaches that a third of all the created angels in heaven decided to go with him. And they were cast down to the regions of the earth. And they are out to deceive. They are out to create havoc. They are out to steal, kill and destroy people's lives. They have no intention whatsoever of ever repenting from their lives. And God said, I as a holy, righteous and just God, I must make a place in which these will face eternal separation from me. So friends, the reality is this, is that God never sends anyone to hell. Anyone that ends up in hell are there because they made a choice. You know, true love, true love can only be experienced if we have the ability to choose. When you marry someone, you turn and face them and you say, I will. You make a decision. Thanks. I will. I do. And God created mankind with the ability of free choice, which of course they perverted in the Garden of Eden and they made a choice, Adam and Eve. And the one thing that God said, you can't touch 
They touched and they ate. And God said there's consequences for that. You will now no longer live forever in the body that I created you with, but you will suffer death because the wages of sin is death. There are consequences and sin separates us. What is death? It's not just dying, but it's been separated from the one who made us. So are you all with me at this point in time? You know, 2 Peter 3, 9, the truth is, is that God says, I'm not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. Now, I want to take you to a passage of Scripture in which Jesus gives an account of two men who die. Make no mistake, friends, this is an actual account. This is not a parable. The rich man and Lazarus is not a parable. This is an account that Jesus was speaking about. Why is that? Because in both situations, he says a certain rich man and a certain poor man. And in any of the other parables, Jesus never gave names to characters in parables. But he gave the poor man a name. In other words, he was a real person. So Jesus is actually describing what happens after our bodies give up the ghost. What actually takes place? Luke 16, verse 19, There was a certain rich man who was clothed in purple and fine linen, and he fared sumptuously every day. He had a fantastic life here on earth. He was very comfortable. He was wealthy. He had no needs and no lack. But there was a certain beggar named Lazarus, full of sores, who laid at his gate. You'll see this all around uh, the third world. Everywhere you go, you'll find beggars laying at gates looking for something to receive from you, especially if you look like a wealthy tourist. You know, like me, when I go to Vietnam, when I went to Vietnam, all the young boys were going, Bill Clinton, Bill Clinton, as they looked at me. <laughs> I look like this wealthy American, <laughs> always asking me for money. If only they knew. <laughs> and he was laid at the rich man's gate, desiring to be fed with the crumbs which fell from the rich man's table. Moreover, the dogs came and licked his sores. We're getting the picture here, friends. The dog came and licked his sores. Verse 22, and so it was, the beggar died, and he was carried by the angels to Abraham's bosom. The rich man also died and was buried. And being in torments in Hades, he lifted up his eyes and saw Abraham afar off, and Lazarus was in his bosom. Hades is the name given to the intermediary chamber for all of the unrighteous. And one day we'll discover later on in the message this morning that Hades will be emptied into the lake of fire after everybody faces the judgment. So Hades is the New Testament Greek word for the Old Testament equivalent of Sheol. So this is not the final destination of all the unrighteous. This is the place where they exist right at this point in time until the great white throne judgment, which you'll see in the book of Revelation chapter 20. And notice the Bible says the rich man was buried. His body was buried. But notice this, that he lived on in Hades, in the afterlife, and he had all the sensations of a physical human body. Now, if I get a little bit weepy in this, you'll understand why, friends, because as I've studied the Scriptures, 
And also as I've, as I've studied the fact that Jesus never, ever shied away from the subject. In fact, he spoke on the subject more regularly than many other subjects. And yet, why is it that we never hear hell preached about in our modern-day churches? In fact, right now, there's a move sweeping the, uh, the New Testament church right across the world that actually says this is only figurative and symbolic, that there is no eternal damnation in the Scriptures. Because a loving God will never, never, ever create a place such as this. How could you ever serve a God that would be like this? And so many, many are cutting out many of the portions of Scripture concerning what I'm sharing with you today. But Jesus didn't. And his words are the ones that count. And his words are the ones that we listen to more than any other words. And because of time this morning, I'm only going to take you into this main passage and a few other passages to show you. But mark my words, if you read Mark, if you read uh, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, you will discover that Jesus spoke on this topic many times. Why would he do that? Because he's a loving shepherd. And loving shepherds not only look after their sheep, but they also warn their sheep of danger. And which he did. The Bible actually says... In Revelations 19, verse 20, that the beast which is going to emerge in the days to come and the false prophet who works signs and wonders in his presence, by which he deceived those who received the mark of the beast and those who worshipped his image, these two, listen to this, were cast alive into the lake of fire burning with brimstone. They never faced death. They went directly into the lake of fire. And that isn't the first time in Scripture that this is talked about. Do you remember a man called Korah who led a rebellion against Aaron and Moses because they were miffed that Moses was making all the decisions for the children of Israel. And they said, why can't we make decisions for the children of Israel? And Moses just simply said to them, listen, I didn't choose this job. God chose me to lead his people. And he's given me the authority to lead. Why don't, why don't you come out and let's see who the Lord says is the leader of the people? And of course, the Bible teaches in Numbers 16, it's a, it's a horrendous chapter. If you leave it, if you read it, you'll understand how biblical authority truly works. That God appoints and raises up leaders. And when people try and uh, when they, people try and break the lines of authority of God's appointed leaders, then they're not fighting Moses in this case, they're fighting God. And in this situation, God, Moses interceded again. God was going to strike the whole lot that were in rebellion against him down. And, and, the Lord, and Moses begged and said, please don't. And he said, all right, I'll get the three main troublemakers. And he said, I want you to get away from these three main troublemakers because I'm going to deal with them. And do you know how he dealt with them? The Bible says he literally opened up the earth and they dropped directly into the bottomless pit. And then he closed the ground up. This isn't some fairy story, friends. This is in the Bible. This is what took place on that journey. And you can probably imagine after that, there wasn't too much rebellion going on because people knew who was in charge around that situation. And so it seems that there is... Uh, clearly, people who are cast into this place called hell, this eternal place of damnation, where they are fully conscious and they're fully aware. And I want to show you three 
things about this place called hell. Number one, hell is a place of physical torment. Look at verse 24. Then the rich man cried and said, Father Abraham, have mercy on me and send Lazarus that he may dip the tip of his finger in water and cool my tongue, for I am tormented in this flame. Notice, friends, the Bible says he lifted up his eyes. He had the ability to see. He cried out. He had a voice. He also had a tongue that was desperate need for his thirst to be quenched. Just grab just some water, dip your finger in some water and just place it on my tongue because of the torment that I'm experiencing. He had all of his physical faculties and he was aware of everything that was going on and yet he was in torment and physical agony in this place called Hades. All he wanted was momentary relief. Jesus said in Mark 9, 43, if your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. Now he is speaking figuratively here. It is better for you to enter into life maimed rather than having two hands to go to hell into the fire that shall never be quenched. So what he's saying is, I want you to do spiritual surgery and put the sin that's alive in your bodies to, to, be, to death. And because if you don't deal with it, that sin could take you to hell. That's what he's saying. And then he says, clearly, a fire that shall never be quenched. Listen to this. Where their worm, not worms, not the worms, but their personal worm. does not die and the fire is not quenched. I was raised on a farm in New Zealand. We regularly had to treat sheep for maggots, which are worms that literally infest and feed on an open wound. And they gorge themselves and then they die and decompose in the ground. Jesus is saying here that every person that ends up in hell will have a personal worm that never dies that will be feasting on that person's flesh and that flesh will never decompose but will go on for eternity. Friends, when you read the words of Jesus and you realise the unimaginable horror that is in this place and in your mind you're thinking of family and loved ones and friends that still have an opportunity to turn and find the truth. This is where, friends, an eternal perspective of truth and reality can spur the body of Christ on to be all and do all that we can to rescue people, to stop them from ending up in this unimaginable place called hell, where the worm, their worm, never dies and their thirst is never quenched. I went for a run when I was in Fiji running off all the taro. And because I'm, I'm, I'm gone from running in 12 degrees to 28 degrees, I end up in my run, not running as far as what I would have liked to have run, and I came back and I was just soaked in sweat. You know what I wanted? All I wanted was a drink, water. Can you imagine? Being in that state of mind and never being able to satisfy your thirst. 
Secondly, hell is a place of social torment. Verse 23, And being in torments in Hades, he lifted up his eyes and saw Abraham afar off and Lazarus in his bosom. Can you imagine being in a place like hell and you get a glimpse of how they're living in heaven? Being eternally reminded of what heaven is like, but never being able to shift from one place to another. Because in this passage, the Bible says there's a great gulf between the two. And once you're in one location, you can never swap to the other. That's why it's called eternal judgment. It's fixed and it's final. There's no second chances. You can imagine... You can imagine the regret. You can imagine as they catch a glimpse of heaven but being stuck in hell. If only I'd listened to that pastor. If only I'd listened to my Christian friend at work that began to tell me about Jesus Christ and I scoffed and laughed and I mocked at him. The eternal regret that would fill their minds. I don't believe in all that stuff. And here they are. Friends, the real social torment is being alone in hell. You've, you've, you've heard that saying, misery loves company. It doesn't apply here in hell. And let me tell you why. Look at the verse. Son, remember that in your lifetime you received your good things and likewise Lazarus evil things, but now he is comforted and you are tormented. He was in so much pain. And he just, he doesn't, he, he does he want company to relieve his misery? To alleviate his misery? No, he doesn't. In fact, he wants to warn those whom he would want to have comfort by his side. He wants to warn them not to come to this place. You've heard people say, oh, I don't care about, I don't care about hell. Me and my mates will be partying up in hell. We'll be having the longest party forever. Friends, I want to tell you something. You are alone when you are in hell. You're destined to eternity alone. And it's so bad that this man then says in verse 27, I beg you therefore, Father, speaking to Abraham, that you would send a man to my father's house, for I have five brothers that he may testify to them, lest they also come to this place of torment. There's no companionship in hell. There's no parties in hell. You won't be enjoying your friends and your mates down in hell. If that was so, this rich man would have wanted those who were closest to him to come and join him in hell. And he sends a message to them, warning them to never end up in this place. It's a place of utter loneliness and hopelessness, a place of great social torment. And thirdly, it's a place of psychological torment. The Bible says in Proverbs 11 verse 7, when a wicked man dies... His expectation will perish, and the hope of the unjust perishes. What does that mean in plain language? It simply means this. You will never have anything to hope for again. You will be living in a hopeless state for eternity. There is no dreams. There is no future hopes or vision for your life when you are in hell. You are confined to a life of every expectation being gone in your life. Nothing to ever look forward to ever again. Wow, imagine living on earth with nothing ever to look forward to in your future. 
I'm sure some of you plan ahead in your working lives for that cruise or that holiday or that time that you have off. And isn't it amazing when you set the dates in your calendar, the countdown begins to happen as you begin getting closer and closer to that time off where you can get away from your responsibilities and enjoy some relaxation. And that hope of that holiday pulls you forward into the future. Imagine never having anything ever to hope for ever again. Not just for a year, but for all eternity. Luke 16, 25, Abraham said, here's the psychological torment, friends. Son, remember. Those in hell can remember. He says, I want to remind you, rich man, that in your lifetime you received good things, but Lazarus, evil things. But now he is comforted and you are tormented. To remember means that you have to have a conscious mind. Those in hell will have a conscious mind and will be able to remember, which will produce great eternal regret. I wish I had. I wish I did that. If only I had done this. Whereas those in heaven, friends, are living in the opposite state of mind where Jeremiah 31 says this. No more shall every man teach his neighbor and every man his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me. This is a picture of heaven. From the least of them to the greatest of them, says the Lord, for I will forgive their iniquity and their sin I will remember no more. Whereas hell has negative memories and eternal regrets, heaven is a place of no negativity and no negative memories. For your sin I will remember no more, says the Lord. So how will all this play out, friends? There's two judgments that will happen at the end of the age. The first judgment is the great white throne judgment for all the unrighteous. Those who have rejected Christ, those who have lived a deceiving life, who have masqueraded as Christians, but have not lived as Christians. The hypocrites will also find their place in that place of eternal damnation. And the second one, which we're going to talk about next week, which should motivate you incredibly, and I've alluded to it in this series a lot, is that once you receive Jesus Christ, your everything starts all over. You have a fresh beginning. Behold, all things become new. You are a new creation. You are a brand new person. And from that day forward, you have a clean slate within your life. And from that day to the day that you die, or if Jesus comes back and you're still alive on the earth, you will be judged at the judgment seat of Christ, every Christian, every believer, not on your eternal destination, because that's been decided by the blood of Jesus. When you receive Jesus Christ, every sin in your life was cancelled. Every wrong thing you've ever done, every wrong motive, every wrong uh, attitude, every wrong action in your life has been put under the blood when you receive the salvation of God. So this judgment is not on your eternal destination. This judgment is for rewards or loss of rewards. If you have lived a surrendered life and if you've been motivated and led by the Holy Spirit as a Christian all your life, there is waiting great reward for you at the judgment seat of Christ. In other words, how we live as Christians today will affect how we will live in eternity. And we'll cover that next week. So today we're going to finish 
with what will take place in the book of Revelation, this final judgment on all unbelievers and the unrighteous and the hypocrites. Revelation 20, let's have a look at it this morning. Then I saw, verse 11, a great white throne, and him who sat on it from whose face the earth and heaven fled away. Why? Because of the fear of the Lord. The fear of the Lord. The Bible says his hair is as white as wool and his eyes as blazing as fire. And I saw the dead, small and great. Friends, there may be many great men on the earth today that people bow down and honour. But when it comes to facing the judgment seat of God, the small and the great will be together. There will be no distinguishing between the two. Standing before God. And listen to this, books were opened. And another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged according to their works by things which were written in the books. The sea gave up the dead who were in it, and death and Hades delivered up the dead who were in them. And they were judged, each one according to his works. Then death and Hades were cast into the lake of fire. This is the second death. So we die once physically, and then the final judgment is called the second death. And anyone not found written in the book of life was cast into the lake of fire. Here's a few things that we need to take note of in this passage. The first thing is that heaven is recording our lives. Your deeds, your motives, your actions are all being recorded in the book of works in heaven. And these are what our lives will be judged upon. So for those who have not received Christ and are not walking and surrender to Jesus Christ, their deeds will be brought before them. And I can imagine some kind of a hologram coming up when they begin to try and argue that they don't deserve to be in this place of hell where God will remind them of their deeds and rerun their life before them in that moment. Two categories. Those who were in the book of life, whose names had been written, and those who weren't. And those who weren't recorded in the book of life faced the second death, the final destination for the unrighteous. And everything that was in Hades is cast into the lake of fire, and the unrighteous will be held to account through the book of works, and they will be judged accordingly. What does that mean, friends? You may say, well... We're all going to be on the same level. No, 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 no. Jesus talked about weeping and gnashing of teeth and being cast into outer darkness. There is different varying levels of torment that people will face in this place called hell. Now, how I want to finish this, friends, is I want to... I want us to have a bit of a reality check here. When I study scripture, I try and research all the cross-references in the verses where our topic is mentioned because that's how you save yourself from having a bad interpretation of Scripture. And this is what I found. When Jesus was talking in the book of Revelation in the early chapters to the seven churches, he named each church, he corrected them, and then he also blessed them with promises 
And in Revelation 2 verse 11, I noticed something that pricked my ears up. Verse 11, he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Listen to this. He who overcomes shall not be hurt by the second death. Huh? Why would the Lord include this phrase of the second death, which we know is only going to be accessed by those whose names are not written in the Lamb's Book of Life, but he's talking to Christians? So, I went back to the judgment chapter and the chapter after and found in Revelation 21, verse 8, reading on screen from the Living Bible, listen to this, but cowards who turn back from following me, Jesus, and those who are unfaithful to me, and the corrupt and murderers, the immoral, those that we would consider to be worthy of hell, those conversing with demons, idol worshippers and all liars, their doom is in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur. This is the second death. There's three main categories in this passage of those who will find themselves in the lake of fire. The first are those who have turned back from following Jesus, the cowards. Make no mistake, friends. You better get it sorted out, who your allegiance is really with in the coming days, because Christians are going to be tried all around the earth. And I've traveled for many years into, in behind the bamboo curtain, up into Asia, where it's illegal to practice Christianity. And I've met brothers, I've met fathers and sons who have spent long terms and periods of time in dungeons and in jails. And as soon as they get out, they go straight out and preach the gospel again, only to be locked up again. They are the heroes of the faith because they are sold out for Jesus Christ. They have made a decision that I will never turn back from following him. I will remain faithful to him to the end because of the great things the Lord has done for me. The second in this passage of Scripture says are those who were unfaithful to him. And the third, are the obvious category, are sinners who have never walked with him at all. Those conversing with demons, the sexual immoral, those that we would expect to be in this place could hell. But notice two out of the three categories are those who have known the Lord. Once saved, always saved. Friends, the gospel we've preached has been lopsided and many of us have placed an emphasis of accepting Jesus by praying a simple prayer. And we lead them in that simple prayer. And we wonder why so many so-called Christians fall away after they've prayed that prayer. Friends, you want to know why they fall away? Because they never really gave their hearts in the first place. They came on the emotion and the spur of the moment. But they'd never made a decision in their hearts that they would bow down their knee and the affections of their heart and they would make Jesus Christ Lord and Master. And Jesus actually covers this. Listen to this. Matthew 7, 21. And Jesus says, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. And we ask them to pray a simple prayer and call Him Lord and to receive Him into their lives. And Jesus warns us, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. Wow. Our modern gospel 
often contradicts the words of Jesus. He makes it very clear, not everyone who's prayed the sinner's prayer, confessing him as Lord today is going to heaven. I want to tell you this morning, people might have said it with their lips, but they haven't said it with their hearts. And now Jesus has just become an extra add-on, luxury, with the promise of a passport to get you into heaven. And so Jesus just becomes an extra appendage, an add-on, a luxury to try and make you feel good about your eternal destination. I want to inform you today, the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords doesn't come into anyone's life as second. Or even first, among rival lovers. He only comes in as our complete and total King, with no person, thing or activity vying for His place in our hearts, friends. He must be Lord. That means he's the supreme master. He's the supreme owner. It means that we no longer live our lives for ourselves anymore. What did he say? You are no longer your own. You've been bought with a price. Therefore, glorify God in your body, is what Corinthians tells us today. Think of it this morning. Would you marry someone who informed you today that you would be loyal that you would be loyal to them along with your other lovers, but they would have the first option amongst the other lovers. And yet that's how so many of us are introducing people to Christianity. If he's not Lord, he's not Lord at all. How absurd, absurd it is to say to the King of Kings, that he will accept a bride who has many lovers, but Jesus, I'll make you the first of many. But I'll hang on to these other ones as well. Our idols, our affections, our activities that God has never directed or led us into. And yet we say he is Lord. My last scripture this morning is Acts 2.31. There's some good news in the midst of all this heavy stuff this morning. I want to encourage you, church. I want to encourage you to take these scriptures. I want you to encourage you to take them into the place of prayer. I want you to encourage you to begin to think and dwell and meditate on those who are near to you who have not bowed the knee to Jesus Christ. And I want you to weep and I want you to shed tears. And I want you to come before God and I want you to plead on their behalf in that place of prayer and intercession. And I want you to be the best example that you can be to these people, that they can see a living reality of what a Christian, a real Christian looks like. Somebody who's not out just for themselves, but is ready to serve and honour the rest of humanity because they know the great price that Jesus Christ paid for them. I pray every day for my family. Every day. My family doesn't have a a history of Christianity. I was the first person in my family in generations to come to know God. And I've had to sweat and I've had to weep. 
In fact, my own father came to Christ out of an encounter I had in intercession where his face came up on a screen way before we had flat screen TVs. As I was groaning and I couldn't even speak in English anymore, God took me into the Spirit and my Father's face appeared before me and I looked into His bright blue eyes. He had bright blue eyes. And as I looked into His eyes, I saw the pain and the hurt and the suffering in His face. And I couldn't speak. And I wept and I groaned for hours. And there was such a heavy burden. I I was on a floor like this. And there was snot and tears all over the floor as time just went by. And I lost track of time. And just as the burden came upon me, it suddenly lifted. And as it lifted, the Holy Spirit said to me, Tonight, your Father will bow the knee to me. And out of that encounter, we didn't have cell phones back then. And out of this is only a year after I got saved as as a new Christian. And then the next day, he rang me on the landline. You know the old phones? And I picked up the phone. He said, son, all that stuff you've been telling me about God, it's true. Last night, I gave my life and my girlfriend gave my li- our lives to Jesus Christ at a Bill Sabritsky meeting. So you see, friends, this thing is real. This thing really works. And I want to tell you something. If we really believe in the doctrine of hell, If we really believe in the words of Jesus, then there's an eternal perspective that God wants to spur and motivate your life in such a way that this place shouldn't have any spare seats. Not because we want to be somebody, not because we want to be the church on the grow, because there's people that are destined to sit in one of these empty seats today who currently does not know Jesus. And because of your witness and because of your life, they're going to come to know it. They don't have to come and pray the prayer at church. You can lead them to Christ wherever they are. And you can bring them into a relationship with Jesus Christ. Finally today, Acts 2.31. He foreseeing this spoke, this is speaking of King David, spoke concerning the resurrection of Christ. That, listen to this, that his soul was not left in Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. This Jesus God has raised up of which we are all witnesses. Let me tell you something. Jesus went to hell for you and me. Between the cross and the resurrection, Jesus went down into Hades to taste eternal damnation for every man, woman, boy and girl so that they wouldn't have to go there. But the Bible says that death and corruption could not wrap their arms around our Lord and Saviour because He was without sin and He did not deserve to be there. The only sinless man, the Lamb of God without spot, wrinkle or blemish. And He paid the full price for the penalty of every person's sin. He took all of the sin of the world upon His own body and He literally descended into Hades and He took the keys to hell and death and He rose again on the third day, victorious. The grave could not hold Him. Death and corruption could not wrap their arms around Him as He broke out of Hades and He broke out of the grave, now making a way for every person to experience eternal life. He said, whosoever believes on Me shall not perish in that lake of fire, but they shall have eternal life. Could we bow our heads in prayer?